0: G'day, Darren Mitchell here, and welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, I had the privilege of having a conversation with Paul Glover from Chicago, Illinois. Paul is a no BS workplace performance coach, but also has 20 years of experience as a federal court trial lawyer in the States, but also spent five and a half years in prison. So we talk things all storytelling, uh, very, very pertinent to leaders, but also reflect on his time in prison and what some of the key lessons were from that particular experience. So buckle up, hope you enjoy this conversation, and as always, if, you, if it resonates with you, please do your team a favor and share it with them, because it may just be something that's covered on this particular episode, could be the difference that makes all the difference for your team in terms of unleashing their potential. So with that said, enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. Welcome back to the Exceptional Size Leader Podcast. Darren Mitchell here and a special welcome to Mr. Paul Glover all the way from Chicago, Illinois. G'day, Paul. How are you? Uh,
1: Darren, I'm doing well. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and to uh, talk to your audience. So thank you very much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on board. And and what's really interesting about this, you and I have had a couple of conversations so far before we recorded this podcast. Um, the power of podcasting and the power of the internet, I, like two years ago, I would never have even thought about uh, speaking to somebody via video on the other side of the world, which, by the way, oh, you're actually in the past because we worked out that you're 17 hours behind.
1: So so thank you for those stock tips.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> if only I had that almanac I could send you. <laughs> 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 so, Paul, um, love to have a conversation with you today about a number of things. As you know, we're all about leadership, and I know that uh, I'll, I won't sort of um, I'll let you do a bit of an in- introduction for yourself. But for the listeners, you are the No BS Performance Coach. You've got a very interesting background: uh, twenty plus years as a federal court trial lawyer, but interestingly, also spent five and a half years. Uh, and I normally would say at the um, I was going to say at the mercy of now, if we you in England, it would be saying Her Majesty. But I don't know. What do they say in America if, if you happen to be um, – is it at the at the mercy of the – is it the president? <laughs> <Or> <laughs> only, we, we, just refer,
1: <laughs> we just we refer it as, as to the mercy of the court. Right. You get the judge gives you the sentence and, uh, yeah, it's at their mercy or lack thereof.
0: Right. So, look, I'm really interested uh, – really looking forward to this conversation because you do have – a very interesting background and I love to delve into all things in terms of your background as a uh, federal court trial lawyer but specifically we talked about some storytelling elements last week when we chatted so I think that's going to be something that we'd love to explore but also some other things in relation to your experiences um, and how we can use those experiences and look everybody's got a story and how we can use that story and those experiences to help others Based on you know, we might go through some really tough times, uh, and we may not wish it upon anybody else. But it's it's so far our story, and and we need to accept that. So, as a beginning, can you just give us a a bit of a background? What I'm really intrigued as a as a lawyer, what what got you interested in in law at the beginning of your career? What was it that said? I'm gonna, I wanna, I wanna spend time in a in a courtroom.
1: Well, I actually, I know this for those. Look, I think that we always make make our decisions based off of things that intrigue us, interest us, or give us some happiness. I loved watching Perry Mason. <laughs> I, Perry Mason. Mason. And I seriously did, and, and I still do. I, I, I just got off on the courtroom scenes, and I thought, I want to be that guy. I want to be a trial lawyer, I want to be Perry Mason and be able to do that to a witness. Make the It's always interesting, Perry will make you confess, right? On the stand, you're going to confess. And I was like, I want to do that. Uh, and it absolutely was part of the motivation, that concept of watching a lawyer. And think about it. At that time, this was one of the few trial lawyer programs on television. And it was extraordinarily popular. Obviously, my family, my grandparents, who I stayed with, uh, and I watched it weekly, every week, Perry Mason, yeah, 10 years. Uh, and, and so I, I, as much as people go, that's not a noble reason to want to practice law, you're right. <laughs> but it certainly was motivation. And uh, it led me to, uh, to decide that I was going to become a lawyer. Uh, But I also wanted to become a specific lawyer, employment and labor, and that was because of my father. My father was a union guy, and and I was directed towards that area of the law. And so I uh, I put myself through uh, through, uh, undergraduate, and then I worked nights or worked days to go uh, to law school at night. And uh, three and a half years later, I graduated, and I decided I wanted to practice law. And by the way, I was a terrible student because I figured out right away that I didn't want to try. I, I didn't want to do wills or trusts. I didn't care about contract. I wanted to try law Now, not criminal law, but civil, but I wanted to try law. And so I skipped classes. I, I would go to trials and watch expert attorneys try their cases. Wow. And, and so I, I started to get my legs under me before I even got out of law school. And so yeah i graduated and i was like all right all i have to do is find somebody to pay me and i'm going to have fun because i looked at trial law as performance art yes uh, you know at first trial lawyers are adrenaline junkies
0: yeah yeah uh, and
1: the, there's really highs when you're at trial and the preparation is arduous by the way the deal is four hours worth of prep for every one hour at trial okay so as you prepare, you go through all this discovery, documents, interrogatories, depositions, all of the grunt work to get to the trial. Mm. I hated all that crap, but I couldn't avoid it. I had to do it. Uh, and then I, then, then I got to be in front of the jury. And the jury was my audience. And uh, I tell people that uh, trial law between two accomplished trial attorneys is like trial by combat without weapons. Wow. Right. And we've got a judge and the judge makes sure that you abide by certain rules. But uh, actually, you know, it's it's fair game. I mean, you figure out what your strategy is and then you get to perform. And the jury is you want to you want to see somebody a decision made about how you did is when they decide you won or lost and tell you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, uh that that was how i got there and uh, and i enjoyed it i truly did i love practicing trial law
0: it makes you said an interesting thing there you mentioned performance arts and i'm i'm really curious because i've i've never actually been into a real courtroom to watch a real trial but i only get you know visibility on on la law and all these law shows where you, and even bull because i know we talk about bull um the, the i guess the uh, jury scientist and yes what 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 was it that like when you talk about performance art because it it strikes me as you've got two people who let's say for all intents and purposes are equally credentialed equally experienced and on the day it's their ability to influence the audience through the performance they put in the courtroom that ultimately determines the outcome now whether the person that you're representing is guilty or innocent, your job is to prove to the jury beyond reasonable doubt as to whether your client uh, on your side. So um, talk to me about the, cause I, I relate this back to as a leader and certainly in people in sales, we have to perform every single day, whether we're performing in front of a jury in terms of a board of directors or two people, it's performance, so we have to tell a story. Because I want to explore the story part. Um, how did you feel when you're in there? Because you said the pre- preparation was arduous, right? And four hours preparation for one hour of performance is not dissimilar to what like I do in terms of preparation for workshops and facilitation. There's a stack load of work to done yes. to done beforehand, so you're prepared. To tell me. Explain to me how you felt when you were doing that. When you're on that stage, what was what was the thing going through your head?
1: Well, it, first, uh, the concept of getting up there. Like I said, I believe that every trial lawyer is an adrenaline junkie. Mm. So you. Hi, uh and if you're not you're not going to do well you obviously can't go overboard there's clearly boundaries and limitations but the reality is you've got to be extraordinarily enthusiastic extraordinarily positive because what you said is true uh and i believe this this is has application to leadership leaders often believe they can force people to do something and that doesn't work i i, I tell my the people in my coaching process program i say look They will shake their head, yes, in front of you, but as soon as they walk out the door, they shake their head, no. And they're talking to each other Mm -hmm. about, that's a complete idiot. We're not going to do that. Uh, So the concept is you can't force people anymore. Mm -hmm. You have to influence and persuade. And that's how it is with a jury. You can't force them to be on your side. They have a choice to make. So how you approach them (coughs) determines the outcome of the trial. By the way, never put my client on the stand my clients never put on the stand.
0: you mentioned that last week yeah. well, so, Why is that? So
1: my job well my job was to do what to make them look good yeah okay i was i was first my contention was if i put a client on the stand the jury says well i know that he's going to lie to me because it's self-interest yeah and look at the surrogate they go well that guy's is a lawyer, and by the way, as much as we hate lawyers, when we're in trouble, we want the one whose nickname is Mad Dog. <laughs> that's the guy we want. Now, up until then, we hate lawyers. As was that Henry VIII, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers until you need one. And like Mad I said, you want, you want Mad Dog. <laughs> the guy who's going to rip the throat out of the opposition because that's what your client wants you to do. So I never put my client on the stand. I was the surrogate. And, and, of course, how I then interacted with the audience, the jury, had a huge impact, if not the impact, on the outcome of the trial. By the way, interestingly enough, the jury never hears all the facts. Neither yes. side tells tell the jury the complete truth. Mm. If they hear all of it, they might actually be independent-minded. Yes. And we that. We don't want it independent by the jury. Uh, so we, we work within the system. And my contention was, and let me, I'll tell you how I came to the conclusion of how I had to address the jury. Uh, my first two trials I lost yeah, and, and an unhappy guy and thought I'd done well actually until the verdict came back. And there was a, a, a crusty old experienced trial lawyer who sat through both of my trials. And at the end of the second one, he said, hey, for the price of a steak dinner, I'll tell you what you're doing wrong. And, I, and Darren, after three and a half years of paying for law school, I thought it's a pretty cheap price to learn how to win a trial. Absolutely. And so we went to, we went to dinner. Uh, once again, dinner wasn't so bad, but he, he drank a very expensive bottle of scotch while we were talking. And his lesson to me came down to one thing. <coughs> he said look you're really good at telling them the facts the problem is you don't tell them the story Mm. and he said if they don't hear the story if they don't connect to the narrative you will always lose because facts do not win anything i believe that's the same case in business yeah if you want to be cold-blooded, hard-hearted, and talk about the numbers, do not expect that anybody is going to give you the discretionary effort. They're not going to join you on your success journey. They're not a part of it. Yeah. They're there for the dough.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? That's Absolutely. what they're there for. Uh, So that's what I did from then on. I would take a look at at the facts, and I would go, I need to tell a story to the jury so they hear the facts, because facts do matter. Mm. But I emotionally connect with them. I want them to feel like we're working together on a journey from the beginning of the case to the end of the case. And my client occupies an interesting position. He's the hero. <laughs> so they always the hero. Well, I, first, there's, there's only two types. You can do, he wasn't the hero. He's a recovering scoundrel. Yes. People love recovering scoundrels first they were bad but now they're good that means redemption resurrection and transformation and i love to take that guy and say you're right you're going to hear the other side talk about how bad he is and they were right Hmm. but that's not who he is now who he is now is a transformed character. And the reason this that he this transformation occurred was because of the journey. And I'm gonna take you with the with us on that journey. And you would be shocked at how engaged the jury would become in the story. We love storytelling, don't we? Everybody Absolutely. loves storyteller.
0: Absolutely. Way
1: back to when we were on the savannah and there was a campfire and the, the, the storyteller, the elder and the tribe would stand up and enrapture everybody with the story of whatever it might be, origin of the tribe. That works. And by the way, that works for leaders. Mm-hmm. It's hard to convince them of that because the part of doing this requires two things, authenticity and vulnerability. And leaders hate being Vulnerable, and they're afraid to be authentic. They think they're supposed to know it all. Mm-hmm. If you attempt to see say, say that you are infallible, and then you make a mistake, you're done. Yeah. How can I trust you? You told me you were infallible,
0: yeah, and so, yet. Uh, yeah.
1: So so yeah, yeah I did, and I, I've taken that concept of narrative and I've put it into my coaching process because that's the first thing that I want to talk to a leader about their communication style.
0: Yeah. So- oh they're interacting. Absolutely. So the first the first two trials that you went you thought you did really well because you covered all the facts and you probably did the right thing yeah. you were taught in law school and stick with the facts stick with the facts and you should you should win because the truth will quote unquote always prevail. Um, and then you got like a mentor because we're going to talk about hero's journey and literally that was your own hero's journey. Was that the first time that you I guess the concept of the hero's journey came to the forefront of your mind?
1: It did, and by the way, I, I have to admit, you would have thought after I'd watched all those trials, I would have gotten it. <laughs> you know, don't, don't you think, I mean, if I'm saying, I'm going there to look at the trial. The problem is law school beats that out of you. Right. They, they don't want you to be like that. They want you to be nothing but about the facts. So yeah, it, uh, it absolutely uh, it absolutely is not taught. Mm. you learn it. And if one of my concepts is blind spots, and we all have them. And one of my blind spots was I could sit there and watch a trial. But the only thing I was looking at was technique. Yes. And it wasn't I was missing the other part of that I was missing the emotional connection that a good lawyer was making with the jury.
0: And so as soon as you tapped into that mentor who said, hey, I will show you what you're doing wrong and unlock and maybe put a a torch on that blind spot, you now were connecting the the fact of the technique with the emotional connection. And tell us what happened from that point in terms of your win rate.
1: Never lost another
0: case. Never lost a case. Never lost another case.
1: I got to the, and by the way, I pride by, you know, first, I've got a lot of pride. and I haven't practiced law since I, before I went to prison, but I actually was so good that uh, the other side would settle rather than go to trial. So it was a fantastic negotiating technique because first, <laughs> you never wanted to have me interrogate you on the stand because I was going to make you look like a complete fool. You were going to become the villain make you look stupid. Yep. And people started to regret. I, I actually, when, when I started to develop this reputation, I actually had a guy on the stand for six hours. And he, he told me, he said, you know, I just want to, at some point, I just wanted to say you win. Just let me get up. So I can get off. <laughs> exactly. I've had it. Uh, so no, I once you develop the reputation, then it serves you in good stead. Uh, and, and reputations go for a long way. But first, you've got the skill set, the competency, and you have to show that this is how it's going to turn out. Same yeah. thing with writers. Uh, they, they have to they have to do the groundwork before they're going to be recognized.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, is that where the um is that where the reputation of Mad Dog came from? That's right.
1: Well, in fact, I got to my my uh, my practice changed. Uh, I couldn't get anybody. like people started to hire me for appellate law, so that they would lose a case. Yes. And would hire me to win the case at the next level.
0: Right. Okay. And and so So that's a different court.
1: Absolutely. That you lose at the trial level, you go to the appellate level. And interestingly enough, the audience is different at the appellate level. It's judges. Yeah. Okay. Not a jury right there. There is no jury. Jury's already heard the case. You've lost You're, you're now in front of the judges. And uh, that's a different, that's a completely different animal, right? Because they are lawyers and yet the same thing would work with them even though my nobody testifies except you get to argue oral argument is how it goes now they've already seen the briefs they know the trial or they know the issues uh, and so you're up there for 10 to 15 minutes and they immediately attack you right They're, because they they are putting you on the spot maybe for a variety of different reasons it could be that the jur- the judge that comes after it's usually three judges it could be that the judge that comes after you really wants you to be able to he's on your side but he wants you to be able to convince one of the other jurors that they haven't been able to convince yeah okay so it's it's repartee right if you want the the ultimate is they're looking to embarrass you (laughs) that's what they want to do they're looking to make you look like an idiot and so the back and forth but interestingly enough if I could get in some of that emotional attachment, which they weren't used to hearing, I could see when I got one of them. I'd be watching for that opportunity to make my client look like a human being. Yeah, okay. And someone that that they needed to uh, to side with. It's still, it, by the way, there is no one this approach won't work on if you know how to use it. Yeah. And and that's not manipulation. It's just tapping into the emotional aspect of everybody's psyche.
0: Yeah. We've all got it.
1: It's just Absolutely. how you touch it.
0: And that's the thing you mentioned blind spots before and I think a lot of people can understand the concept of storytelling and the and the importance of putting people into a story and and certainly casting a vision. But I think a lot of people unfortunately uh, or either poo-poo it or say, you know, it can't be. It can't be that influential. Let's just stick with the facts. I love for your perspective on when it comes to storytelling, and and you know, reflect on your trial lawyer days, but also what you do now. What do you think are some of the key elements that we need to really grasp when it comes to story and telling stories? Well, first, first,
1: you have to recognize the need to be a storyteller. Let's start yeah. with the uh, and if you don't have that, then nothing else works anyway. But if you—if that blind spot, and by the way, that is a blind spot because leaders have been trained a certain way. Someone has to point it out to them, just like the, the older lawyer pointed out to me. And I tell people that a part of what I do is, is that I alert people to their blind spots because I have the psychological safety to do so. Yeah. You've hired me to actually help you get better. And if I see that you've got a blind spot, we're going to have to first recognize it, then we're going to have to do something about it. Because blind spots don't go away, but you can change your behavior so that you can overcome the effect of a blind spot. When it comes to storytelling and being authentic, I force the the leader to actually interact in a vulnerable fashion. And that's how, that's how I get them to start to, to connect because I want them to tell their story as a human being to other human beings. And I will continue to put them in places and, and interactions where that's required,
0: which means they have to get out of that comfort zone in order to do that.
1: Of course, every, everybody locks in, right? Here's my comfort zone and, and, and I'm not going to, you can't make me. Yeah, I can
0: but what if what what if i look like an imposter what if i what if people realize that i'm not as good as i've been perceiving that i am how about it how about if you
1: actually engage in telling them a time you did not do well a time you failed how about if you absolutely admit you're not infallible failure is something you need to embrace Mm. everybody has to endure it i love people who say no no i'm going to stay in my comfort zone so i will not fail i tell them Failure is coming for you. You are not expecting it because you're not taking risk. No, no. The world and the universe is random. Risk is not a side to people. It shows up.
0: It will always show up. Absolutely. It does. So vulnerability is the first one. And I suspect, you know, we'll talk about the hero's journey as well. So a hero needs to be vulnerable because they need to understand that there's a there's a journey they have to go through, which means not going to have all of the answers they're going to find there will be obstacles and there will be thresholds to cross there'll be massive chasms to cross um so vulnerability is a key part of that how important is is the connection part of storytelling and is there a specific technique that you have used in order to make that connection is it for example the vulnerability or is it something else that you think we need to Well
1: the only way that you can show people you're vulnerable and authentic is to actually connect with them to communication mm. And, and leaders have got to get out of the office and go to where the people are. And I, I, one, of the, one of the things that I use with, with leaders who have a third shift, I love third shifts, because that's where everything happens, right? Why? Well, there's not enough supervision on the third shift. And so there's you know, usually a supervisor who's the king. Uh, and one of the things I tell leaders, uh, you need to connect. Uh, and I asked them, when was the last time you were on the third shift? And of course they look at me like a deer in the headlights, right? Yeah. What do you mean? That that's that's the one that starts at midnight, right? When I'm in bed. I'm like, yeah, that's so by the way, those people are still your employees, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let me tell you what you have to do because you need to go and connect with this group. They've got things to tell you that you need to hear. And see, that's the value of this communication. Most leaders are engaged in a in a monologue. They need to be engaged in a dialogue, but dialogue means you have to do certain things so that the other person feels safe. Psychological safety has got to be established, but nobody, no one's going to do that on their own because of positional authority, right? Yeah, Uh, absolutely. I tell the, the, you know, the emperor has no clothes. You don't want to say that because the emperor might just cut your head off. So, So I tell them, go to the third shift. Do not tell anyone you're going to go. You do have a key, right? Open go, go into the cafeteria, wait for that shift, manufacturing, warehousing, wait for them to go on break. Set at a table. I said, now the first time you go there, they're gonna call the police because <laughs> they don't know who you are. Well, yeah, but I'm the, dep- so what? They haven't seen your face in so long. They don't know you. I said, set there, set at a table. Do not let supervision come in and and interact. They shouldn't even know you're coming. By the way the third time you do that and the guy's thinking the third time you mean i got to keep doing this yeah you got to keep doing it how about once a quarter you get your lazy butt up you go to the third shift you go into the cafeteria you buy everybody coffee bring some donuts uh, and you sit there the third time they will believe you're serious authentic and they will talk to you yeah and one of the ways you engage them is you tell them about you and your issues because of the hero's journey, to be a hero, you have to have a villain, right? Little Red Riding Hood needed the wolf. That's it. Yeah, Without wolf, she just went to grandma's house. Interesting story. I just walked to grandma's house, and then I walked home. No, we want to hear the wolf showed up. So you need to tell people, listen, when I started this and, and what we're doing now, and here's the adversity, what I had to overcome. By the way, I couldn't do it without you. Mm. Uh, now you're, you're bringing me into the story. So now we're on a journey together. I appreciate you. Thank God you're with me. By the way, there's going to be other wolves. Mm. Right? Absolutely. Don't right now. And I need to know that you're going to be with me on the journey because without you, I can't succeed. Once yeah. you say stuff like that and mean it, you got them. They become a part of your journey. And that's what you want. You want them walking with you, not behind you, walking with you.
0: And it's a really interesting point because you you mentioned going on the third shift and, and look, people listening to this, they might actually work in a manufacturing area where that makes absolute sense. But the other key distinction I want to take from that is the fact that many leaders, unfortunately today, even though they know better, they still lead or manage by absence. That is, they'll sit in their office they'll be on their computer, they'll be looking at spreadsheets and forecast documents and they'll be managing upwards, not necessarily being visible to their team. And one of the things I talk a lot with with my clients is you've got to build visibility. You've got to be in front of your team as often as you possibly can. You don't have to have an agenda, but you just have to be there. Now, if you can add storytelling into that and demonstrate a level of vulnerability and maybe share some of the, your your fallacies, if you like, or some of the challenges you've experienced, that builds credibility. And through that, builds trust and as you say if you build trust you get them on that journey they become now part of that hero's journey you go into the new world together
1: and first spot on how you're doing it uh, because you're absolutely correct you can't do any of the i could not do what i did unless i was visibly and uh, physically in front of the judge the judge would often have to tell me to step back mr glover please step back Right, because I would be. And look, think about this. You you start to make eye contact with people, yes. And you start to pick out the, the the jurors who you know are on your side, and you make a more uh, visceral connection with them. So, because you know that when it comes to jury deliberation, I'm not in the room, they are, and I want them to now say, "I'm that guy's advocate." for this, for this outcome. Well, so I had to make sure that I had several supporters who I had made such a connection with that they were going to support my cause in my absence. But you're absolutely correct. Being present is is part of being vulnerable, isn't it? And, you know, the, the concept, and Darren, I know that you do this also. The hardest person for me to coach is someone who's successful. And they, they, once they realize how hard this is going to be, and it's going to be a, not necessarily a hard, but uncomfortable, right? right? Out of their comfort zone, showing they're vulnerable. Uh, you know, I love a leader who every once in a while cries. You know, they're like, hey, yeah, I mean, oh, my God. By the way, you can cry and be grateful, right? Yeah, uh, It's not that you cried out of fear or sad. You can be so happy that you can cry. And, of course, men aren't allowed to cry, you know. Not We've not- We've got this emotional deficiency that people tell me about all the time. And I'm going, man, I'll tell you what, I've been in places where everybody's emotions are so raw that you better be careful you don't touch them. So, <laughs> <laughs> literally. So, uh, so yeah, the, the, the concept is be present and be vulnerable. Uh, and, you know, when I'm dealing with CFOs in particular who are obviously numbers guys, mm-hmm. I behind every number on that spreadsheet is a face. That's who you should be concerned with because how do you think that number got created? We often forget where it comes from. So successful leaders need to understand that their success is not as great as it could be. Mm. In fact, they got discretionary effort from their employees. Most of the time when when you are that type of leader, you're getting what you pay for. It's a transaction. What I would say is a relationship. Yeah, because with relationships you will go above and beyond if I ask you to. Hmm. By the way, don't ask too often without reciprocation. But the reality is, if I've got a relationship with you, I can count. You know, in Chicago we have a lot of very weird sayings. Let me give you one. Friends help you move. Real friends help you move bodies. (laughs) that's a relationship (laughs) it's a
0: commitment (laughs) we're
1: looking for that tight relationship where i'll do anything that you ask me to because i believe in you i believe in your cause and i want to be part of the journey
0: yeah yeah that's where you get discretionary effort totally powerful and the the key the key takeaway from there for me is the the power of being able to first of all be vulnerable share your own story be okay with your story because all of us are on a hero's journey and we're always going to be on a hero's journey in fact we can be on multiple different heroes journeys at the same time depending on what sort of area of our life we're focusing on but it's also the power of the emotions that storytelling actually invokes and when it comes to decision making for example. You know, if we're trying to influence somebody, we have to be able to tap into that person's emotions because without a level of emotion, there's no emotion that's going to be created because within that word emotion is the word motion. So it goes back to what you found out in the first two trials where you were very, very factual, but you didn't necessarily tap into the emotion, which actually forced the jury into a course of action that you wanted. But as soon as you were able to create that storytelling and create that emotion, everything changed. It
1: did. And and I would suggest that, that there is no way that if you do this, follow this process, as you described it, that you won't make that connection and see the results. And the nice thing about it is once you get a leader outside their comfort zone to where they start to not have transactions, but have relationships, yep. they like it. Yeah, And, and suddenly it changes them. It, it transforms them. I mean, we're not—we're—we're tra- we're transformed by other human beings.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, we, yeah, transforming ourselves is too difficult. We 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 can't see our blind spots. We're not aware. Other people transform us, but if we don't have that connection with them, the transformation can't take place. Hundred well, percent. And and it, whatever it takes, the, the the physical as well as the verbal. By the way, we all we get our cues. What eighty percent depending on who you're listening to. From what? From the physical. Well, if you're not present in front of someone, they may hear your voice, but that isn't going to do it.
0: No, that's it right. Make connection. Absolutely. So storytelling for those listening, get get really good at building your storytelling muscle because if you can do that, the the world literally is your oyster and within that obviously is the hero's journey now i'd like to pivot just a little bit paul in terms of your own hero's journey and you spent half five and a half years um, at the at the governor's pleasure or at the magistrate's pleasure at, at the court's
1: pleasure it wasn't my pleasure
0: <laughs> no I, I can i can imagine um but that's part of your that's part of your story right and having had a conversation with you you don't shy away from that right no now it's this is not about you know what did you do to get there and all that sort of stuff because that's irrelevant but what i'm really intrigued in terms of your own hero's journey what was some of the key lessons that you took away from that experience being five and a half years um locked up That you now utilize as part of your own hero's journey to unlock the potential of the people you work with. So, what are some key takeaways for for you from that?
1: Well, and uh, you know, I break my uh, I break my time in prison down into uh, into two segments, two primary segments. The first two years, I plotted revenge. Okay, Uh, and and to tell you, when I speak about blind spots, it's because I've I have definite blind spots that impacted me all of my life, and that. Right against now. Uh, and I'll give you how serious those blind spots are when they impact behavior. I was standing before the sentencing judge, and he said to me, if you accept responsibility for your crimes, remember, I've already been found guilty.
0: Yeah.
1: I will knock. He say, I will reduce your sentence by a year and a half. I'm looking at going to prison for seven years, right? Yep. And good time, five and a half. Knock another year and a half off. I'm out in three and a half years. Now. I'm already guilty. He offered me the opportunity called responsibility. Accept mm-hmm. responsibility, and I said no. I would not say that I was responsible for going for committing these crimes. My wife, of course, God knows why she didn't divorce me on the spot because <laughs> I was too stupid to live. Uh, and, and I said, no, I won't do it. And they also said, well, I, we want you to also tell us information about other people who committed crimes. No, won't do that either. So I got no reduction in my sentence, went to prison, did the full bit. Uh, and it was because of that arrogance as a blind spot. That stopped me from being able to first admit that I was wrong, even though I'd been found guilty. And second, hubris, pride, that would not allow me to say I was responsible. So two years, I plotted revenge on everyone who put me in prison. (laughs) That's the way I thought about it. I didn't go to prison. They put me in prison, and I was going to get even.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Two things happened. One, uh, after two years, I started seeing people who were there when I first started doing my time come back. They'd gotten out and now they were back. Right. Yeah, well, apparently they had not changed their behavior. And it struck me like a lightning bolt that that could be me. If I continued to believe that I was not responsible and would not accept responsibility. Uh, the second thing was I suddenly became aware of how in, how my family, my wife and my two sons had been impacted by this whole experience. You know, it's so easy to be looking at ourselves, make our, instead of a hero, I made myself the victim. Mm. I was the one that was suffering. I was the one that, that bad things had happened to, I, deserve this. And at some point it became I became aware of the fact that it was my my wife and my two sons who were the victim caused by my behavior. Yes. Combination of those two things were transformational. And I then reached out and asked people, please tell me the truth about me. Because I don't know it. Obviously I don't know it. And family and friends participated in in helping me see my blind spots. And that, that caused me to, to, to take a completely different look at what was happening to me. And instead of looking at it as a bad thing, I embraced the experience. And people are like, that's insane. You can't, you embrace prison, it wasn't like I had a choice, by the way, I could, I could not be right. it, but I was still going to stay there. It wasn't like they were going to let me go. I said, no, no, I am going to embrace this experience and therefore I'm going to benefit from it. That to me is what we do when we, what we should do when we face failure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the interventions after two years, was that, um, was that people coming to you to visit you? Was that through some sort of correspondence? Nope. I,
1: I contacted everybody that, that uh that would still speak to me yep. and, and I said, I want you to come and visit me in prison because I need to have a conversation with you about me. And I think people have been people had been waiting to tell me what an was for years. Seriously, I was a I was an arrogant trial lawyer. Plus, I was I hung around with bad guys. I wanted I was a bad guy want to be. Yeah. I did. I just was. I was completely. I, one of the things. The weird thing is, if I hadn't gone to prison, I'd be dead. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. If I hadn't gone to prison, I the course that I was on, I was either going to kill myself or be killed. That's the people I was hanging out with. Wow. No, I went to prison saved save my life. Uh, obviously, I did not see it at the time. I thought i taken my life away. But no, retrospect gives me the opportunity to say, this is what would have happened if I had not changed. And the yep. only reason I changed, I was not going to change otherwise. There yep. was no reason for me to change. I was successful doing what I was doing. However, I was easily manipulated. Because of those blind spots. I always thought I was the smartest guy in the room. you know. And they say when you're sitting at a card table and you don't know who the sucker is, it's you. <laughs> That's right. And I was the sucker with this group of manipulating bad guys. They knew which buttons to push. That yeah. you know, A good con guy knows your buttons. That's how they manage to con you. Because yeah. otherwise can't be conned. So no, I I was definitely not going to make it. I I was truly going to be dead. Uh, As people came and talked to me, I said, look, I've invited you here because I need your help. And I want you to understand that I need to hear the truth. So I gave them the psychological safety they needed to be able to tell me the truth.
0: Mm.
1: I, I didn't like what I heard. Yeah. But I refuse to get upset about it, and I took that information. And by the way, I, you're you're sitting there, and someone's telling you something you don't want to hear. And as a coach, that's often our job. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. You you go look. Let me talk to you about your behavior when you did this. <laughs> they're like, what about my behavior? That's nothing wrong <laughs> with me what are you talking about <laughs> exactly uh how about it really sucked and you shouldn't do that anymore they're like well that's the way I you know and, and so we we've got to be able to look at this and go we're there to tell you the truth hmm. as a truth sayer your obligation in a coaching relationship is to tell people that right expose the blind spots help them alter modify their behavior because the blind spot doesn't go away but how you react to the trigger does
0: yeah absolutely
1: triggers you instead of that knee-jerk reaction take a breath stop don't allow your behavior to be triggered uh that's how it works but it takes practice right because we're now breaking years
0: decades oh yeah sometimes generational
1: oh you're right when when you watch I do a lot of work with family-owned businesses and the dysfunction between Mm -hmm. Regeneration is terrible because you now have the relationship, the blood relationship you've got to wade through to get to that behavior, right? So anyway, uh, and and so uh, in prison, I heard the truth and then I reflected on the truth. I accepted that it was the truth and it changed my perspective of the situation and myself. Wow. Not being the victim, and I became, I was, I said, I'm going to survive this and be better. Yeah, I will become the hero.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. So two key things that, that I took out of that. One is uh, responsibility. And, you know, I don't think anybody would wish to be in the situation that you found yourself in. And it would have been difficult, probably at your lowest point, to be able to take responsibility and say, hey, there's nothing I can do to change my current circumstances. But it's not serving me and it's not serving my family to continue to blame other people. So I've got to take responsibility. And when I do that, then everything potentially changes, which meant you're in a psychological position then now to be more receptive to the feedback, to maybe open up your eyes to perhaps things you hadn't seen, which enabled you to then plot a pathway forward to probably meet your heroes or your mentors, to be able to then cross the threshold into a new world but look at what you can get out of the experience that was positive that you can now pay forward. And the other part was what I took from that is the impact on others. That often as leaders and particularly leaders who are hell bent on success and driving to the top, often there is, there's collateral damage along the way. Yeah. And sometimes that collateral damage are the people closest to us. So starting to recognize the impact of your behavior and, and how you do things how it impacts other people is really really important because it, it it gets you to reflect and think am i am i doing this for me or am i doing this for others
1: yeah and if unless you're a psycho uh, <laughs> you, you have to have the emotions that allow you to feel what you just described yeah. Because, yeah, my, my family stuck with me for five and a half years of incarceration but i guarantee you if i had not made this transformation i would have been out of that family because yeah. they to allow me, when I got out, to remain a part of that family, because I had left them financially destitute and emotionally destitute yeah. because of their behavior, they still had to live with what I had done when I went away.
0: Yeah. Now this might sound yeah. like a um, a weird question, and I don't mean it to sound weird, but do you, based on based on this experience, because often you can't join the dots until you look back and say that's the reason. I'm here today, right? Do you see yourself now as a better human being because of the experience you had? Oh, absolutely! I, there, yes,
1: yeah. There, there is. Uh, I was the least empathetic person you could ever see. Yeah. I was centered. I was arrogant. I didn't care about anybody else. And by the way, I was making money and I was winning trials. And so, and and by the the, the group of bad guys I hung out with would pat me on the back and tell me what a great guy I was and stroke. My- and you're, you're a member of our group. We take care of each other. Yeah, they're the guys that testified against me at trial. So <laughs> I can only tell you there is no honor among thieves. So absolutely. And, and the ability to go, all right, uh, I'm going to be different now. And, and I, I'm going to stick to it. By the way, uh, it's a bad analogy, but I use it anyway. If you're a recovering alcoholic, you don't go into a bar and tempt yourself to see if you can avoid having a drink. I stay away from bad situations that I know would tempt me. Uh, and that's how I avoid temptation. I see no one who believes that you strengthen yourself by exposing yourself to temptation once you know how it can infect you. Yeah, and so, yeah, I avoid it, but I don't avoid failure. Yeah. Uh, I like I said, I am. It prison took my weaknesses and turned them into a strength.
0: Which leads me to the next part is if you look at the hero's journey, you've crossed the threshold, you've met the met the mentors, you've probably dealt with your greatest adversity, uh, you've found the I guess the the thing that's enabled you to transform, and you now come back to the ordinary world, right? The old world. So let's just say you've, you've come out of prison after five and a half years. You're a new person. You're a better human being. You've taken responsibility. You recognize the impact on other people. I would say that a lot of what you learned enables you to now talk from authority in relation to resilience. Now, I'm sure you experienced a lot of stuff that ordinary people probably can't comprehend by, by being in prison in terms of some of the behaviors and some of the politics that goes on. But I'm intrigued now that you're back in the ordinary world and and now as the the no BS performance coach, um, how does that position you now to really help executives, managers, family businesses, individuals to really take their performance to the next level from specifically a resilience point of view? I'd love you to talk about that.
1: And and you're you're absolutely correct. Uh, You can't. I don't believe that that without the ability to be resilient, you can survive as a leader because the setbacks and the adversities. I don't care how how well you think you're doing. They're going to come and find you. Uh, they occur. It's the uh, the black swan event. And so the reality is, I tell people you must practice. You must practice being resilient once again by not avoiding Failure at adversity, but by stepping into it, and people are like that—that that hurts, right? I don't want to do that. No, no, you have to do that. Otherwise, you can't become resilient.
0: Yeah,
1: you've got to learn coping skills by actually having something to cope with. And I tell you the hero's journey requires is back to the wolf. Little Red Riding Hood had to have the wolf. If you're a leader and you're on the hero's journey, seek out. Adversity, and I, you know, again, this is counterintuitive. <laughs> absolutely, is required to strengthen yourself, so that when you are faced with the black swan event, like the pandemic, that you don't just crumple and die. That's uh, I, I would, you're, you're spot on about this. I, I thought that I was resilient before I went to prison, but prisons was an environment that I have absolutely no control over. One of the sayings in prison, when, when you are coming in as someone who's been successful, they tell you, you ain't running nothing. <laughs> for somebody who was used to running everything, you really have got to take a step back. And of course, in prison, the strong attempt to take advantage of the weak. It's the system.
0: Yeah. And
1: you know that you hope that the system is going to protect the weak. No. The weak are on their own. Uh, and so when I stepped into it, I went to prison when I was in my 50s. Hmm. Uh, so I'm an old white guy showing up in a prison and I look like I'm fair game. Right? I mean here he is. is he go- Well you, you immediately say first I must I must accept the fact that adversity's here. They're not going to put me in solitary confinement for five and a half years. I'm going to be in general population, so yep. I better do what's necessary to be able to survive the adversity, whatever that may be. And in prison, it's much more psychological than you would think. Prison is actually one of the more polite places on earth. Is that right? Oh, that's because you never know if the guy next to you, regardless of how his size, his size, or anything, may have just gotten bad news from home and that might flip him out, and he might turn into a berserker.
0: Yeah,
1: Everybody's got that. And you would see it happen day in and day out, that someone you never thought was going to go off would go off and beat the crap out of people. So you live in that situation of being constantly on guard, being prepared for trouble every minute of the day. Not one minute would go by that you should, you had to be alert. Like I said, tell tell leaders, you should always be looking for trouble. It's there. You might not see it yet, but if you stop looking, it will find you. You will not be prepared. So the concept of preparation is absolutely about seeking out adversity, seeking out trouble, and dealing with it instead of avoiding it. And if you fail, by the way, half of life is failure.
0: Yeah, absolutely absolutely
1: just it's just the way it's structured right learn to deal with it don't run away from it don't avoid it Accept your responsibility for a portion of the failure Mm. and move ahead that's resilience
0: right oh absolutely and look there's so many leaders out there and individuals who are not leaders who try to avoid making mistakes avoid adversity thinking that it'll all be okay they stick their head under the pillow and say it's all right No, nobody's gonna the, the wolf is not gonna find me but it's, it's about doing the preparation, knowing that adversity is going to find you, but being prepared that when it does, you've got the internal resources to be able to get through it, but also embrace the experience for what it is, because it just might be that you have to go through, these, through this experience so that you can help somebody else who doesn't necessarily have to go through the same level of experience that you've just gone through. So it's about how do you pay that forward?
1: Well, and, and you're absolutely right. You, you share you share. You share the experience that you've had in an attempt to help someone else. And back to the hero's journey, because I'm attached to the hero's journey. If you've done it correctly, you already have the support system necessary, so you're not standing alone. Mm. And I'm going to face adversity on my own. Well, I don't know what level of adversity you're after, but I guarantee you most of the time it's going to beat you down. If you've got the group with you, if you've got your team, your tribe, and they're on the journey with you, they will absorb and help you overcome. And that's where you succeed as a leader. Otherwise, you will be defeated.
0: Oh, and it's a very lonely journey, otherwise, isn't it? It
1: is, absolutely. And fighting your way back, if you've got your crowd, like I said, your group, your posse, whatever you want to call them, they will be there to support you. And by the way, they will be okay if you if you're not as good as you think you
0: are. Well, the thing with that is, if you got if you got people who, and this just comes back to the point of surrounding yourself with the best best possible people who are there with the right intentions, right? You mentioned before you surrounded yourself with some maybe some dodgy people that led you on a path that perhaps could have been anything. But as leaders, we've got to surround ourselves with people who who we know, who we like, who we trust, who have our back and we have their back, which enables us to be uh, vulnerable because that group creates naturally an environment of psychological safety where you don't have to be pretending to be anybody other than who you are. And guess what? They accept you for who you are. It's okay.
1: And they love the authentic And once you see, that's the definition of authenticity. Be who you are. That's not when, when there, there, There's a silly cartoon. I forget, a dog, and he would send a guy back. And he, at the end of it, he, he would always go because he, trying to be somebody else didn't go well. He said, be who you are, not who you, not who you are not. People who do that have the happiest lot. And the reality is authenticity is being who you are now if you don't know who you are find out because people will tell you not who you think you are but who you are see yeah. that's psychological safety one of the things that that i always tell leaders to surround themselves with are contrarians who are right <laughs> Contrarian is not a it's not a badge of honor unless you're right yeah. and you at least hear what they have to say because you hear first they believe in what they say and second when you look at it without the blinders without the lenses that people you got your blind spots you will see they are right you embrace your contrarian who is right uh it, it just it's it's how you manage to do the hero's journey yeah the hero's journey is never done by yourself it can't work it's too hard
0: that's it that's why yeah, absolutely it, again,
1: there are too many wolves you there
0: get,
1: there's a pack. by the way wolves come in packs not oh, just,
0: yeah, where there's one there's gonna be another one absolutely exactly absolutely. so as we wrap up Paul, phenomenal conversation really enjoyed this conversation and hopefully the listeners have got a lot of value out of this um for people who are interested in knowing more about paul glover mad dog um, where do the, where's the best place for people to? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, obviously, I have a, every, Everybody has a website, paulglovercoaching.com. Yep. Uh, I also offer everyone that, that, that of, in your audience, because obviously, I appreciate the opportunity to be in front of them, uh, the the opportunity to connect uh, connect with me paul at paulglover.com or on linkedin paul glover coaching by the way anybody who responds uh, uh with a question I, I, I love the contrarian right what i would love is somebody calls me up and said you call yourself the no bs workplace performance coach you're so full of bs i can't see
0: <laughs>
1: that gives us a conversation i want to have right
0: Absolutely,
1: I so love it. people to tell me i just heard what you said and you're wrong and i love. Conversation, Right now, maybe I can convince you, maybe not, but, but walk away with a slightly different perspective. And that's what I'm looking for. Because if we don't get continue to get that, we suddenly become very frozen. Mm. And the ability to be a coach to me is to continue to grow as a coach. Definitely. And be able to provide that experience, that level of experience to the client. Uh, you can't, you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be flexible. If that's what you're asking your client to be, that's what you have to be. 100%. It's- Having, having someone of your audience contact me is fantastic. By the way, having someone of your audience who calls called me or, or contacts me and say, I'd love to give you money, I'm more than open to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, Paul, all the way from Chicago, Illinois, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on there, having you on the podcast. All the best, mate. It's fantastic talking
1: to your audience. It's been a blast, man. Awesome. Cheers,
0: mate.